Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Rikindi. Today we're joined by Margaret Hossel. Margaret has completed her PhD in chemistry, with her research now exploring the relationship among technology, strategy, and governance. Her research focuses on two often interesting ideas, reducing the threat of weapons of mass destruction and understanding the role of emerging technologies for security. Kossel is the author of numerous publications, including Nanotechnology for Chemical and Biological Defense, as well as the editor and contributor to the volumes Disruptive and Game-Changing Technologies in Modern Warfare, Development, Use and Proliferation, which was recognized by NATO as a top book of 2021. So with all of that, thank you so much, Margaret, for joining us and welcome. Thank you, Alexa. I appreciate the opportunity. Amazing. So uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. What got you interested in genetic engineering and weapons mass destruction? You know, I've always been interested in politics and global affairs. Um, And in many ways, I would probably credit that to my mom and dad. Uh, My mom was one of the first Peace Corps volunteers from the United States, you know, back in the 1960s. Um, My dad spent 20 years sailing on the Great Lakes as part of um, on some of the, the ships that used to transport steel. Um, so our dinnertime conversations often were about travel, about these sort of big issues. Um, as I was looking to pursue my undergrad and my graduate degrees, um, I really wanted to do science. I wanted to both push back the bounds of knowledge, and I also wanted to understand you know, as, as much as I could at the fundamental level. Um, and it, in some ways it may sound, it may sound very self-centered, but there's something really fascinating about being the first person in, potentially in the universe to synthesize something. Um, and, you know, yeah, it's something that nobody else was going to synthesize and probably wouldn't. But some of the compounds that I was synthesizing and the crystal structures, you know, it was just that that fascination. Um, as I was finishing up my Ph.D., um, I was invited to be part of a group that was starting up a small a uh, small high-tech entrepreneurial company. Um, and that company, we worked on detection of a variety of things, but sort of you can think of it as detection of vapors. Um, and this was around the time of 2001. Um, so not only, of course, were there the attacks on um, the World Trade Center and on the Pentagon, um, but they're also in the United States were these anthrax terrorist incidents. So some of the work I was doing was looking at detection of biological agents, detection of chemical agents, and also explosives. So this was sort of like bringing back around to that interest in global affairs. Um, And I came to be aware of this field that I'm in now, which is sometimes called technical security studies. Um, So, you know, in my my real job, as we might call it, I'm a professor um, in the Georgia, at the Georgia Institute of Technology, otherwise known as Georgia Tech, in Atlanta, Georgia, um, in the Sam Nunn School of International Affairs. So I'm a PhD chemist. Most of my colleagues are political scientists, uh, historian, um, you know, international affairs scholars, international relations scholars. Um, and this is something that I love being able to sort of 
do research and investigate, hopefully push back the bounds of knowledge for good at this intersection of science and technology with security, with things about weapons of mass destruction. Um, you know, so specifically interested in genetic engineering. Um, I, it was, that wasn't something that specifically called to me. Some of the work that I um, was involved in you know, as a PhD student involved the synthesis of de novo proteins for a variety of different things. So it's sort of always adjacent. Uh, it really was the WMD, the biological terrorism, the emerging technologies. Um, that really was what got me to the interest in genetic engineering and some of these new techniques that I know we're going to talk a little bit more about, um, you know, how they came about. And more importantly, what do what do these what are the consequences of our own human ingenuity for good? And then also, how do we potentially avoid the bad consequences? Hmm. Really interesting. Um, and I, I guess on that topic, in the last few podcasts I've had, we spoke about the exciting opportunities of CRISPR being used by the average person. Do you think there are any dangers associated with this approach? So there definitely are dangers. Um, you know, so sort of for the average person, um, doing CRISPR and doing CRISPR effectively um, is harder than it might seem. Um, there's a great video out there of one of uh, science magazines, so AAAS, American Association of Advancement of Science, one of their, their science journalists who has a background, and I don't remember in, in what science or engineering, trying to do CRISPR. And to do CRISPR, even if you're just sort of like doing the, the, the rote, the little steps, it's a lot harder. Um, now, Often when I give talks, I say we don't really, it's not so much, you know, the biologists, the molecular biologists who need to worry about. It. It's the engineers who make things work easy. And that's where particularly your average person, um, you know, as things are being made into kits, as things are becoming more accessible, that's where CRISPR and some of these other genetic engineering um, potentially become more accessible to average people. And most average people who are doing this are doing this for, for curiosity. They're doing it because they're working with their kids. You know, you're making, um, you, you might be making a bacteria smell like bananas. I mean, that's the classic example with some of the, the synthetic genomics, you know, these, these neat little things. And there are some other examples that ha have more practical consequences. So for the average person, I think overall, much they're they're good things. Now, if we start talking about the not average person, like a state-based weapons program or a large transnational organization, um, then there are lots of uh, potential dangers. Um, and I hope that we can get into some of them, um, particularly as we talk about existential risks. Oh, 100%, 100%. And I also, um, I mean, I, I'd love to even talk about that now. What sort of risks do you think that that would take if you're looking at CRISPR on a much uh, larger scale or, or with experts who are in a proper facility building on um, research? What do you think that looks like? And also the other genetic engineering tools, uh, what are those and how do they differ from CRISPR? A couple of years ago, I did some research looking at what are some of the 
scenarios, and I, I want to stress, I'm talking about scenarios. I'm not talking about things people are actually doing um, that might challenge nuclear weapons in terms of strategic stability, in terms of the place, the role that they play in, in geopolitics. Um, and so I, did, I published a paper in the not, journal called the Nonproliferation Review um, discussing a couple of these scenarios. So if we look at something like CRISPR-Cas9, and it's important to re recognize, you know, the Cas9 piece, there are other different little pieces, some that have been, there's a CasX that has is uh, potentially more useful. Um, there's some other techniques like zinc finger nucleases that predate CRISPR um, that have actually been developed into therapeutics and used and are being used in, in clinical trials. Um, there's another new technique uh, that came out a couple years ago um, called PANDA. Um, and that's where instead of RNA, it's using DNA. Um, so we've got a whole number of different techniques. There's another one that's called TALENS. Everything seems to have an acronym. Um, Another piece that's really critically important as we talk about, you know, thinking about the risks from these emerging technologies, particularly by large state-based programs, and, you know, that's a stand-in for Russia, for China, for big offensive state-based programs, maybe Iran, um, or big transnational companies that have equipment, people, and money. You know, so we can talk about the, the techniques. It's really important to recognize that there's sort of a next level that is, in many ways, is almost more important if you want to get to things that really are dangerous, as opposed to just hypothetical scenarios. Um, because what somebody can do, particularly, you know, a PhD student, a postdoctoral fellow, what they can do in a lab once, twice, you know, three times, is not the same as what you might want to be doing if you're making a weapon. Um, so we're starting to see some different mechanisms. And ju just a couple weeks ago, there was a uh, paper published in Nature. So again, one of these really highly regarded uh, scientific journals, it's primary research, um, where uh, some researchers from MIT have taken, um, it's called a CIS, um, C-I-S, and what this is, essentially it's a bacteria that they kind of function like little syringes to inject payloads into cells. And these systems that they use, the needles that they use, bacterial needles, the one that they developed it on is something that infects insects. So they had to use, or they didn't have to, but they did, they used an artificial intelligence program that you and your listeners might have heard of, AlphaFold, to try to predict, to model what that three-dimensional structure, the changes that would need to be made so that this bacterial needle, injector, syringe, whatever you want to call it, that normally injects into insect cells could be used to inject into human cells. 
So you use AlphaFold. Now, AlphaFold gives you something. It's all in silico, in, uh, you know, in computer and electrons. That doesn't mean that once you have that, you've got it. Because there still was a lot of work where this graduate student then had to, to tweak what AlphaFold predicted to make it work. But he did. And they're now looking at, they've demonstrated that using these syringes, they can inject the Cas9 protein. So potentially to be able to do some of this CRISPR genetic engineering. Um, they also injected uh, GFP, green fluorescent protein. That's you know the protein that was isolated from jellyfish that makes things glow green. Um, it's, just, it's a really cool marker. It, it's standard um, in the sciences. Um, and then they also uh, demonstrated that they could inject zinc finger nucleases. Now, I want to be really, really explicit. You know, these researchers are doing this for all of the best reasons. You know, one of the, the hardest aspects of targeting cancers, treating cancers, is targeting cells and getting your treatments into the cells that you want. So they're doing this, you know, for all good, beneficial reasons, in addition to pushing back the bounds of knowledge. You know, but here I, I go into this detail because, yeah, we can talk about CRISPR-Cas9, we can talk about talons, we can talk about zinc finger nucleases. You got to have a way to get it into the cell. And so it is these other technologies that are being developed. And there are other ones. That one just happened to have you know, been published in Nature a couple weeks ago. So And it's really cool research. Um, that's what is going to potentially enable some of these dangerous scenarios. And I want to say that, like, it, you know, as we start to think about these dangerous scenarios, these are like 100-step processes. This is like step three. So it is of concern. It's not something that can't be overcome. But I also want to, you know, want to be careful to not, you know, be hyperbolic. So back to where we sort of started with it, existential threats. So thinking about nuclear weapons, is there something that might challenge nuclear weapons in terms of existential threats in a technology context? I mean, existential threat is actually a really high bar. Um, you know, so I put existential threats, you know, there are astronomical things, you know, a, a you know, like a species killing meteor. That's, that's an existential threat that we really can't do a lot about. We're trying, but we can't. You know, this climate change is an existential threat. I mean, sometimes I will say that, you know, I, I deal with nuclear weapons and nuclear proliferation because climate change is too depressing. Um, you know, that, that, that is an existential threat if we don't address it. But then thinking about, okay, so what technologically might challenge nuclear weapons? And so I went through, did some of the, the research, some of the, the due diligence thinking about this. And one scenario in terms of the geopolitics, what we call strategic stability, that might challenge nuclear weapons and the roles that they play would be something where you develop a system that, whether it uses CRISPR-Cas9 or any of these other genetic engineering techniques, so that it changes a group of people such that they can no longer reproduce, makes them infertile. I mean, that, that's fundamentally the threat 
Um, now, there's a whole number of layers of things that you have to do in it. It's really hard to racially target. There, you know, that's probably actually not going to be be effective. Um, you know, the current techniques for CRISPR-Cas9, you you very much have to. Um, it's it's based on having a willing participant. Um, so you've got to develop these means. That's why I say you got to have the engineers are the ones who do the concepts of operations. Um, you know, but what would this look like? And if a state was to do this, and it's the important thing here is what are you targeting? So I mentioned that zinc finger nucleases are being used for clinical applications. All of those clinical applications target a person's DNA that they have currently. They're not targeting the DNA that they will pass on to their progeny. And that's the critical difference. Um, most states that do have regulations, the United States, pretty much all of Europe, Australia, they limit and say, no, researchers are not allowed to do this kind of change to the to the your DNA that gets passed along. Uh, 2018 uh, had a big conference in which a Chinese researcher announced that he had edited the, the DNA of two fetuses, two cells that were part of in vitro fertilization, such that those changes were going to be passed on over and over again. Now, there's a whole lot that's not known about, his name's uh, Hu Jintao, um, what he did. There were things he asserted. It's not clear from the data that's been released exactly what he did and, more importantly, exactly how effective it was. Um, but, you know, so we have had this instance in which someone has used CRISPR-Cas9 to edit the DNA such that they have to be two girls were born, these, these two female uh, children, it, the changes are going to be passed along. So it's thinking about scenarios like that. And you know, I, hopefully it's evident in the number of steps that I've been talking about that this isn't something that's going to happen tomorrow. But we need to be thinking about it now. And I also will will note that I'm not talking about any concepts of operations. Um, in my publication, there are no concepts of operations. Like, how would you actually go about doing this um, to large groups of people? Um, and even if I had thought about those, I wouldn't publish on them and I wouldn't be, be talking about them. That I, that's part of being responsibility of, of being a scientist is just because I recognize that something might be possible, particularly when we get down to sort of the tactical level, that does not mean that I should share that with everyone. Yeah, because even with that, they've, um, from my understanding, they trialed that, or there's a huge discussion with um, mice or rats in um, New Zealand to stop the species from spreading. And then there was a huge controversy within the population saying, well, should we do this? Is this, um, it may be helpful for protecting biodiversity, but then what larger complications would this um, result in? So, um, no, I think that's very interesting. And I understand that the doctor in China lost his, um, um, accreditations, you know, got stripped away of everything as a result of that. But it is a proof of concept that that is actually happening in countries where laws may not be as regulated um, or as enforced. 
So it is very interesting when you have large global superpowers that have the uh, finances and the equipment to be um, studying these certain areas. And maybe there's a lot more um, research underground that most of us aren't necessarily aware of. So I, I do understand what you're saying in terms of that is something we should be uh, mindfully aware of for the future. Oh, and uh, who he... Uh... He was imprisoned. Um, I forget the specific amount of time, but he was put in jail. Um, and he is, has subsequently been released and it is back working in a lab. It's a, a different lab. <laughs> that's, uh, that's good to know. He's, he's back at it. No, but, yeah, interesting. Um, so and so I, I will just one other thing to say is there was also a after who made his announcement at this this big meeting in Hong Kong, um, about six months later, a Russian scientist who worked at a fertility clinic announced made this public announcement that he was going to do something similar, um, and he was said he was he was going to use CRISPR Cas9 to try to treat. Um, these embryos to change the, the DNA in these embryos uh, where it was an issue of deafness. Now, deafness is its own community and the deaf, and so there are whole issues there. You know, do we treat deafness as a disability? Um, but so he met Dennis Rebikoff was his, his name. He he made this announcement in in a uh, interview with the with the, some journalists from the, the journal Nature. Um, said, I want to do this. And, you know, it was didn't hear anything, didn't hear anything. Uh, a few months later, the Russian, uh, one of the Russian ministries said, no, don't do that. Uh, so uh, my hypothesis was part of what he was doing, you know, being in an authoritarian state like Russia, he was essentially sending up a test balloon uh, to see, well, hold on, if I do this, you know, it is Putin, because effectively it's Putin, is Putin going to approve or are there going to be negative consequences? And he heard that, no, don't do this. So we haven't heard from him. One doesn't know, like, though, what is being said publicly and what is being said privately. So if he makes a public statement and uh, Putin comes out and makes a public statement back, that could be to keep the global community at ease. But one also doesn't know what is happening um, underground. And the, the saddest part is a lot of the stuff is positive in the sense that, you know, the um, Chinese doctor, he ended up, creating these twins that are immune to HIV and AIDS. I mean, that's a global issue that so many people are dying of, but it's that double-edged sword of what are the repercussions of something like this, curing deaf people. I mean, that'd be phenomenal. People never had to worry about um, being born without hearing, but what are the wider implications of these? So very, very interesting. Um, and I understand that you're also quite interested in nanotechnology. So tell us more about nanotechnology and the implications this may also have on society particularly as we've seen rising tensions within the global landscape. So happy to. So I actually started out doing nanotechnology. Um, and the first thing to sort of step back and think about when we talk about nanotechnology is nanotechnology is not uh, a discrete homogeneous entity. Um, in that way, it is different than nuclear weapons. You know, you can't, you can't have a, you have, you can have a nuclear weapon, you can't have a a nanotechnology. Um, and it's also different even than chemical or biological weapons. Um, this is fundamentally groups of technologies um, or it's technology that enables other systems. So that fundamentally makes it, again, it makes it different than nuclear weapons. It makes it different than chemical biological weapons. Um, it makes it more complicated. It makes it more interesting. It makes it much harder to 
both detect and it also makes it harder to address from sort of an international governance perspective. Um, so you mentioned my first book, The Nanotechnology for Chemical and Biological Defense. Um, in that, I go through some, again, some technically robust scenarios that don't have concepts of operations, um, looking at some ways that nanotechnology could specifically be used for overcoming countermeasures. Um, so things like, well, how we we have vaccines for certain things is there there are ways potentially that nanotechnology could be used to get around these vaccines um you know so we you know just recently there again another piece that was published in nature um there was use of some nanoscale lipozoids to target mrna to get them targeting the epithelial cells of the lungs. Again, this is all this is motivated is for ways to try to address lung cancer. It's really hard to get things into the epithelial cells in the lungs. Um, so here you've got mRNA that's being encapsulated. It's sort of like a nano shell, a nano delivery system that effectively gets it in to the cell. And so it's that kind of ways, way that nanotechnology is going to potentially have implications in terms of warfare. Um, you know, in terms of the global landscape, um, the current mRNA vaccines against COVID-19, those use nanotechnology. Um, and it's one of the things that isn't mentioned is that they actually have a one of these nanoscale you know, uh, liposomes that's used for the delivery. Um, and these go back, these are things that go back, you know, decades. This isn't brand new technology, all of it. The mRNA has gotten deservedly most of the 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 attention. But if you didn't have this nanotechnology, the mRNA vaccines for COVID-19 would not be as effective. So here we're seeing, again, there's the beneficial aspects, and then we're thinking about potential negative aspects. Um, and that's fundamental to pretty much all modern technology. It's something that's often just called the dual-use conundrum, you know, dual-use technology. Um, sometimes dual-use gets used in this old-fashioned way, which is sort of like it means, is it for military or civilian purposes? But there's a, a more modern and the, the the way it's used more often in the biological and life sciences is technology that can be used for beneficial reasons to make, to solve problems for mankind, but that also if you've got malicious intent or deleterious intent, that it can be used for harm. And that this is where it becomes so important intent and some of these efforts to ensure that technology is used for beneficial purposes become much more important. And, and it's a layer. It's layers. We've got to have, we've got to have the arms control treaties. We've got to have the export control aspects. It's all these different layers, which can sometimes seem tedious. But if we are talking about something that might have 
existential implications or even just really bad implications like some of the the you know rabbit hemorrhagic fever which i think is what you were talking about one of the the examples in in new zealand um you know that you know those can have consequences that are very difficult to predict so it's important to have these layers of protection to address but then that would also mean a global regulation and that means that every single country with everyone has to agree yes you know they they, they, they yeah. can't be um uh, threats or um, you know I will only agree if you do X, Y, and Z and with those yeah. rising tensions I mean everyone's got their ulterior motives isn't that, that famous quote um, there's no friends in statecraft only mutual interests and one so, hopes that the mutual interests are that we all want to work together because with all of these technologies the, the future seems pretty um, bleak if we don't all collectively <laughs> create these boundaries so yeah, you can you can look at it from that perspective. You can also look at it if you want to look at it from much more of you know from a political science view, sort of a realist perspective, where it's all about individual states and their power. That you know you're not depending on international treaties or global governance to be the end all, but you can look at it as we're reducing the area in which there might be or there which there are more likely to be your violators you know so the biological weapons convention it's the weakest of the three major non-proliferation treaties there are ways that it certainly could be strengthened nonetheless we are better to have it in the world than to not have it so we have things like um you know the the un 1540 efforts um, you have the Proliferation Security Initiative, which is fundamentally a consensus-based agreement among, you know, it started out NATO, Australia, Japan, and, you know, friends, and it's now expanded. Um, so it's it's building a metaphorical toolkit, not because one is looking or one expects there to be no cheaters, but it's reducing the threat space because you are building up you're building up things where you are having relationships where you are doing inspections where you are exchanging information so that's i'm I'm very in in many ways i I very much emphasize with some of the, the skepticism you 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 know you expressed we are not in that wonderful era you know that sort of like second half of the the 20th century where there's some you know all these interest in you know global non-proliferation trees we're not in that era of the world so we have to be more creative about how do we figure out how to try to govern uh, the potential negative aspects of our ingenuity while also being conscious uh, that we don't want to inadvertently hinder certain states by over-regulating. You know, so that's the, the flip side. I call this the good neighbor risks, um, where you, you over-regulate your good neighbors, then you're not doing the work, um, you're not getting the economic benefits, you're not getting the intellectual benefits, but yeah, some state over here who's not a good neighbor isn't doing it either, 
So, you know, you, you've harmed yourself. So this is where you have to be careful about over-regulation. Um, and we've seen, again, to, to think about sort of these broad, you know, history over the last hundred years, um, you know, in the last 25 years, as we've moved away, particularly the United States, um, has moved away from being willing to engage uh, in global treaties to limit um, arms, to try to, to limit proliferation in arms control treaties. What we've seen is a effort to push the restrictions lower and lower to try to get individual researchers to be responsible for limiting proliferation. And I, I argue uh, strongly, I've done a couple different places, that that's actually not a really good approach. Um, you know, limiting weapons and limiting proliferation is fundamentally a state. It's, it's not about individual researchers. Um, but because we've had this shift in politics, and it, it has mostly been U.S. domestic politics, uh, <coughs> excuse me, the U.S. in particular and, and parts of Europe as well, have shifted towards increasingly looking to researchers, institutes to try to limit proliferation. And most of the time you have scientists who, frankly, I don't, I want scientists working on science. I don't want them to be spending significant amounts of their time thinking about how do I limit the proliferation of something that, that is basic research. Well, the interesting thing as well, though, is that, you know, when you look at uh, government spending on military and defense, um, you know, a lot of the technology that we've seen coming out, um, even within the AI basis, was built and really uh, grown within the warfare um, arms area. So one has to wonder, like, if all of this funding um, into research is really built around how to protect ourselves against these dangers and or how to dominate, um, it is quite dangerous. I mean, you can say research should be on research, but what what is fundamentally being funded and what is the end objective with that funding? And, um, you know, I'm also with COVID, you know, there was a huge amount of research that came out or not, I mean, I suppose, I mean, research is not the right word, but um, that they saw that lab in Wuhan and it was like, well, you know, maybe this was originally a game of function virus. I know it's not 100%, but there was a lot of evidence that had come out in that point of view. And so one wonders, okay, well, all the stuff was being tested, whether it's to protect us and or to understand more, it did have a dire consequence. So what happens if more people go into nanotechnology and let's say we um, can go into cells and then just dissolve your entire arm because it's dissolving each cell within your arm. Now you've got this entire army that could just be dissolved in an instant. I mean, that's pretty scary stuff. So concur. So you've given me a whole bunch of different pieces. Um, and the first one I'll start with is, and I'm going to speak from the U.S. perspective, because that's the one that I know and can speak authoritatively. So there are certain types of basic research that are the largest funder is the Department of Defense. This is like electrical engineering and mathematics. Um, now, I would not look at that and say, well, that's an indication necessarily so much about it being directed towards warfare as that's a reflection of U.S. domestic politics that have made it such that the only places that it is politically acceptable by certain groups to fund things is through the Department of Defense. You know, we can increase the Department of Defense budget, 
if somebody goes to Congress and says, oh, I want you to increase the National Science Foundation budget for mathematics, it's not going to happen. So it's very pragmatic pieces. Now, at the same time, you know, yeah, the Department of Defense, you know, as you go from basic research to applied research to advanced technology development, they're developing things sometimes for very defensive things and everything the United States does around biological and chemical defense is for defensive purposes only. Uh, Public Law 103-160, U.S. Congress, um, that it's all defensive. It's even more than that. It's passive defense. We can't even, in the United States, we can't even do active defense. Um, but there are other things that are for, and this is where nan we can weave back in nanotechnology. You know, there are applications of nanotechnology where you know, the military has tried to exploit the surface area to increase capabilities for things like explosives. You're just, you're, it's a function of surface area. You use less of the material and you get a bigger bang, make more effective explosives, higher energetics. Other states have done this too. Again, I just know the most about the U.S. program and also the U.S. tends to be the most transparent. I mean, we put everything out there, lots and lots of information. You know, so there's there's that piece that sort of needs to be be pulled apart. Um, so you mentioned, you know, sort of the origin of COVID. So there is zero evidence that anything had to do with gain of function. Okay. Now, there is a hypothesis about a lab leak that is within the realm of the possible. You know, so I, I consider it to be a very low possibility, but a lab leak is possible. Increasingly, more and more evidence is, is making that less possible. Um, and it's really important to recognize that, like, we don't know what is the host for Ebola. You know, Ebola has been known for almost 50 years. The fact that we haven't identified this intermediary animal for COVID-19 really is, is more the normal with SARS and MERS, we identified the intermediary host animal really quickly, and that was unusual. Um, I mean, I, I don't, I you know, I don't want to go too much into COVID because it, it one, um, there's still a lot that's not known, and sadly, one of the things with COVID is people who have challenged the lab leak hypothesis have gotten negative attention, and that's putting it diplomatically. They've been attacked. And there are some people who feel very strongly about the lab leak hypothesis who have become just horrible, nasty human beings and attacking people. And, and frankly, there's a sexism and a gender issue because they tend to attack women who say, hey, let's, let's stick to the science. Um, so it wasn't something I necessarily wanted to get into, uh, yeah, but no, no, you, know, you 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 brought you brought it up because frankly I don't want to have yeah no, no, I a bunch you. of um, uh, men you know tracking me down and sending me death threats yeah and, no, and, and sad, I, yeah I also find that's quite a controversial no I, I I think the reason I just brought up is I read it in like the Guardian the New York Times um quite a few um mainstream uh, quote unquote credible 
sources. And that's why I thought, oh, okay, well, this might be a little bit more mainstream than it used to be. Um, but I fully respect and understand you. And, and I, I completely concur. Let's not, <laughs> let's not go into that. I would much prefer to talk about much wider issues that are truly fascinating and not as polarized, particularly within the American political sphere. So um, not a problem at all. Um, so I understand in your publication last year, you spoke about the use of neurological interfaces used in warfare. Tell us more about that. So yeah, this was a uh, publication. It was a study that a um, PhD students from quantitative biosciences and I um, undertook thinking about predicting the adoption of brain-computer interfaces. We focused on BCIs, brain-computer interfaces, as one type of neurotechnology. Um, so what, you know, in the work that I do, trying to be scientific about it, we're trying to figure out, are there frameworks that we can think about to predict which technologies might be at more risk, which might not? Um, so as th in this uh, research, we were looking at what are the factors about brain-computer interfaces, and we did compare the United States and uh, the PRC, the People's Republic of China. Um, and what we found was that if you just look purely at the amount of funding, that's probably not going to predict who is likely to be the first adopter, civilian or military. Um, and in this case with BCIs, there are examples where BCIs are being used in China with things like school children, so civilian applications. So we know that it has has happened. So partially what we're doing is we're using, you know, we, you develop a framework, you know, with some known situation, and then we want to think about, well, what does this mean for military? Um, you know, and so these are things we're thinking about neurotech. This would be an example would be where you have a um, soldier who might be, you know, using something that's implanted in his brain to control a UAV, a drone, um, or to control multiple drones, or to get feedback from multiple drones and robots. So that's one application. Now, there are Lots of questions about what does this mean in the context of the laws of armed conflict? Um, you know, so if somebody's using brain-computer interface to control 10 drones, um, one of those drones ends up killing a non-combatant, have you violated, you know, has that soldier? You know, who is, who is responsible? So there are huge questions in terms of the, the legal implications. Um, there also are huge questions in terms of the ethics. Um, so again, let's say you've got a brain-computer interface, you've got a bunch of soldiers who are deployed, who've got these brain-computer interfaces nominally so they can talk to each other. Well, and here's an example of sort of where different technologies intersect. If you've got these BCIs, your network, so you can talk to each other by thinking, or so that your command can see where you are, can that be hacked? What happens if that is hacked by an adversary, or if you have a society or a situation in which command says, you know what, we're going to take away free will. 
We're going to take away free will from that individual. They're going to go forward and do whatever we want them to do. Now, current capabilities of you know, neuro implants, brain-computer interfaces, you can't do that. But again, these are some of these scenarios that we start thinking about, well, what does this mean? And we need to think about these scenarios to sort of figure out where are the ends? You know, what, what is the example that's kind of out there that makes you back it up to understand, well, as we start to move towards that, where do we want to say no? Where do we want to put the, the gaps? Um, now, in, you know, thinking about the neurological interfaces, BCIs, there also are, you know, comparatively some potentially more mundane implications. Interrogation, truth-telling. Um, you know, 10 years ago, there was some interest in looking at some of these. It wasn't brain-computer interfaces, but some imaging of the brains thinking about it and useful, can intelligence agencies use this for interrogation? Well, it turned out that there were some problems with it. Again, you've got to get cooperative people. Well, there were a couple of companies out in California who developed this technology so that if someone suspected their spouse, you know, or partner of cheating on them, you know, that you could you could volunteer to go in and, and do this. Now, I mean, that's capitalism at work there. I'm not sure if that's good or bad. I'm, you know, it certainly is not warfare in particular, but it's also it's an illustration of how some of these emerging technologies can end up being used in ways that nobody initially thought of. You know, a, a sort of a, a truth detector to ensure that your spouse is not cheating or your partner's not cheating. Um, and again, I do also want to emphasize that there are lots of benefits, uh, in particular, you know, in the U.S., uh, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, DARPA, has invested a lot in um, brain research for prosthetics, um, you know, so better artificial limbs. Um, and that is going certainly going to benefit veterans, but it's also going to benefit people who are not veterans. It is benefiting people who are not veterans. And as um, the average age, as we get older, these are also likely to have benefits for things like exoskeletons to enable. It's not going to be an exoskeleton. It's going to be, you know, an assist so that when you are older, it is easier to walk. It is easier to stand. Um, and so it's always this balance, the good we, that we want to do. That is sort of the, I'm like, you know, again, the, the truth detector cheating spouse. I'm not sure where that falls. And then there's the, you know, things we really don't want to happen. Mm. And the, the curious thing that I want to ask is, uh, what do you think about the potential weaponization of the commercial implications of brain interfaces such as Neuralink? So all these benefits that you've been talking about is really what uh, Neuralink and Elon Musk have gone out and said, well, wow, these can really help people to see or to hear or, you know, by um, uh, even changing addiction or whatever it is by altering your um, stimulus or your uh, signal to specific areas of the brain. And wow, this is truly amazing. But now you're taking... Um, all of these things, like it, because it can be connected to the internet, it can be hacked. So, what right. are what do you think that these implications would be, and how could that be weaponized from a commercial sense? So, I, I am I am concerned 
Um, I would not be willing to go out and get a, you know, a neural link. Um, there are certainly some other things that I would be, be willing to potentially to do, but something like Neuralink, where it is not clear to me, you know, who is controlling it, how good is the security, and it isn't even just weaponization. I mean, you know, we hear about, you know, systems, you know, the, the most commonly targeted commercial systems are hospitals, you know, is so, you know, it's just criminals. I would be, you know, my first concern would be a criminal, you know, then trying to extort because, you know, you can't get into part of your brain. These, these are the criminal exploitation is my first concern with things like Neuralink. Um, I think that that's more likely and more probable. And, and frankly, it it is likely to have much more impacts for average people because it's not it's not a weapon it's not a military it's, you know, it's just criminals when when everyday citizens are randomly targeted by criminals not for political reasons that has a different level of impact geopolitically versus if you are are targeting oh say you know the secretary of defense um or the president or any you know the prime minister um you know so with things like neuralink and i don't want to specifically just call out neuralink but that is the one that's gotten the most attention um uh, my big concern yeah, is is criminal exploitation um and potential where it is not going to rise to the level of having you know major national security concerns so you're just gonna be on your own and how would you know at that point as well when you lose your consciousness how do you know that those thoughts are yours or that there is somebody else inputting those thoughts you'd be like oh i'd just love to go and get a gun and you know recap but you you would honestly believe that those are your thoughts because how would you know the difference and that's quite so when then this is where you go into a very philosophical discussion is like when do you know that your thoughts stop and another so what is you where is where does your consciousness end and just, it is a very weird landscape that we're heading into and, and these are technologies that are being created these are technologies that are being promoted and i get that you know one thing when you look on the positive side oh wow okay you can speak through telepathy we can we don't have to actually talk to each other and they say that talking is the most inefficient way of communicating because i've got an idea i communicate it with a specific amount of words you receive that idea and then you understand within yourself and so and so much gets lost in translation whereas if we can send ideas to each other you know straight away i mean that'd be truly amazing um and the other benefits like we said um eyesight or even thinking if we could have access to things straight away we could have access to the entire internet. Rather, I think Elon Musk's major thing is um, rather than us, and I'd love to talk about artificial intelligence, that's the next question, but rather than us competing against AI and being seen as something that's obsolete, we are now merging with AI in our own unique human, uh, transhumanism kind of thing. But are we then giving up being human? You know, because we are really merging with AI. And so once you've got this chip, are you really no longer conscious? I don't know. So. What are your views on artificial intelligence and, and all of that as well? So, I mean, some of this is getting way beyond my knowledge base, which is the first, I am the first person to, you know, try to acknowledge that I have a, you know, limitation. When we start to get into to the, the philosophy, um, you know, that, that goes, goes beyond my, my knowledge base. Um, you know, I do 
think again i, I try to, to be a be positive um how, would it would it be better for the world if we could you know really empathize with each other and that's one of the things that i you know can i really understand what someone else is feeling to extend empathy um i mean maybe there probably are our background or our you know sort of negative <laughs> negative ways that can be swirled out um you know to sort of think more about artificial intelligence particular and machine learning i mean one of the first things that i always like to highlight is that you know ai ml weak ai um goes back at least to the the first gulf war um where it was used for automatic targeting um you know so it isn't ai has had had waves now certainly the, this newest wave we are seeing incredible increases in specifically in technology and technology that's becoming available to large groups of people. Um, and that's important when something can become visible and available to large groups of people is it really important for technology adoption. Um, you know, in, in many ways, AI machine learning is, is has more similarities to nanotechnology then often gets acknowledged. And that is, again, it's, it's not a hom homogeneous entity. It is more likely to enable other capabilities. So it's, you're, it's not going to be, you're not going to be thinking about, oh, here's the AI weapon. It's the artificial intelligence, the machine learning enables our, that something to be more effective, better targeting, faster, um, you know, so thinking about it in context of nuclear weapons, AI is not, at least not in the U.S., is not going to be, it's not going to be a sort of, it's sometimes called the dead hand um, scenario where you're going to sort of have a computer that's going to launch nuclear weapons. Um, you know, the, the, the fantastic 1980s film War Games sort of had a, it really is a, still a good film that holds up really well. Um, you know, that, that's not going to be that kind of scenario. When we start thinking about the implications of artificial intelligence and machine learning in terms of national security, in terms of strategy, it's where if a state, particularly one state, is concerned that an adversary has capabilities that might make that adversary have asymmetric capabilities, would another state hedge? That is, would another state, especially in the context of things like first strike, um, so first launching of a nuclear weapon, would they be more inclined to launch a first strike because they are, in their calculus, they're saying, hey, the, my adversary state has these capabilities because of AIML that exceed our capabilities. And, you know, it's better that we just assume that they're going to do it um, versus, you know, in the past using the metaphorical red, you know, red phone. So that is one of the concerns that I do think is valid, particularly in thinking about um, AI, machine learning, and nuclear weapons. There's also a really important piece which has to do with the bias of the training sets 
And then there's been a lot that's been written about um, and brought to people's attention um, about sometimes inherent sexism and racism in these training sets that get used. I mean, so that certainly, that that is a problem. That's not the problem I'm talking about. And that's not the problem that I, I've highlighted and written about. Um, there's looking at training sets, and I like to use an example. There was some work that was done with was looking at different ways to synthesize um, photovoltaic cells. So the things, the compounds that go into solar cells. Um, and they looked at using machine learning to try to optimize the synthesis of some of these different compounds. And some of them are, some of them have different metals in them. They have different, different materials. Well, you know, use machine learning. Well, what they found was that because of the initial library and the bias in the researchers as they built this library, that influenced what was predicted. You know, so I mentioned AlphaFold before. AlphaFold depends on a library that is input by people. Then, you know, uses artificial intelligence to predict a 3D structure. You know, this example with the photovoltaics. You know, so there's, I, I use those examples of bias in training data sets because that's the kind of bias that we, we often are not aware of. We're not looking for it. You know, so if the U.S., if NATO is building a training data set that it's, oh, let's say, using as part of, you know, looking at satellite imagery, or another example, if the atomic, uh, uh, the IAEA, uh, the Atomic Energy, I'm blanking on the exact acronym, but if the IAEA in Vienna, if they're using artificial intelligence to look for anomalies in some of the, the data, some of the images that they get, but the, you know, it's trained on data that has these biases, then you're going to potentially, whether we're talking about U.S. military, NATO, IAEA, you're going to potentially miss that. So we've got to be, we've, we have not invested enough thinking about into these potential biases that might have security implications. And so mm. that's a piece of AIML um, that is a risk. And in some ways, it's a risk to you know the U.S., to NATO, to the IAEA, which you know is representing effectively the world. Yeah. When I'm when I'm looking at that, um, you know, two things come up. One, I recently. Um, finished reading a book by uh, Gary Kirkjop, the um, global chess player, the Russian chess player years and years ago. And um, he was saying, you know, towards the end with um, AlphaGo and um, there was another one that I think beat AlphaGo like a thousand to one or whatever. And I mean, he said that when you, when you witness these machines playing, it's truly, um, you know, amazing because initially, you know, game uh, chess was seen as such a beautiful art form. Uh, a, a way to um, express um, intelligence, but then also creativity, how you choose to play. And so when the initial um, human got beaten, it was truly like, wow, this is crazy. And then when you would have a, a, another um, machine on top of that, beating it a thousand times to one, and all it does all day, every day is just play. But what he was saying was actually when you take a mediocre person and you have them um, playing with an AI, 
against um, either a much better AI. The, the human verse um, and AI combination um, usually won, which I found really interesting. And so I thought, well, you know, humans are also subject to bias. Um, you know, so when you have um, these machines that would go off this large data set and then they would be subject to bias, um, you know, I guess if, if a human had to oversee some of those um, ideas before they implement them, you know, maybe that could be, but then one also wonders, um, you know, in, in that scenario, um, there was also Go. And when the machine um, AI had to do moves that were seen almost as unheard of, but then when you watch the game um, come to a closure, it was like, wow. Um, he absolutely nailed it. So you've also got those two schools of thought. Is like, well, one, what happens if you had to, I guess, put in um, basic fundamental um, orders or boundaries to say, look, AI can't do X, Y, and Z, um, but then leave it to doing its own devices. But then once again, you don't know what you what you don't know, the unintended consequences of that action. But it could also potentially come out with solutions that we would never have even thought about that could be so much more beneficial. So, um, you know, what, what does that landscape even look like is to completely ignore artificial intelligence and not utilize it would be a massive mistake. But then how would you know what, you know, what, what sort of boundaries you should put in place? Should you give it total reign and so that it can come up with these amazing outcomes or not? What do you do? I, that, those are fantastic questions. And some of them go, go beyond my, you know, again, beyond my expertise. I would start by giving it sort of bounded, bounded challenges. I mean, and we the other way that we can do is we can look at some places where AIML has been tried to be imp implemented. And what we have seen is there are some fabulous ways that human beings have come about, come up with getting around AI. ML, it's mostly ML. Um, so if you remember back a few years when there were the umbrella protests in Hong Kong, so many of the protesters were using green laser pointers to dazzle the the optics that were, you know, doing the, the facial recognition. They also used umbrellas. I mean, literally just blocking it. Um, mylar blankets to limit heat detection. So, you know, part of this is, is we do need to be thinking also about countermeasures. Um, and I would it, countermeasures are something that definitely needs to be thought about. Um, another more recent example that I think illustrates beautifully sort of this creativity of humans a little bit, you know, that we were talking about. There was a test recently with some U.S. Marines, and it was a system that was designed to detect people. And part of the challenge they went through, they did some testing. Um, and then they had a, a day what was the challenge. And the Marines were told that they were going to get some reward. And I don't remember what it, what the specific reward was. It might just have been bragging rights. If they could get to the system. Well, as I recall, you know, from, from the um, report, all of the Marines were successful in getting around detection by this AIML. One, instead of walking, did somersaults. One, you know, grabbed a bunch of foliage and sort of hobbled along like he was a tree. You know, so again, it's, it's human creativity, particularly encountering some of the, these systems. Um, now, there is a limitation in the Hong Kong example, you know, where you have an authoritarian regime that can use 
both the system of government and just potentially brutality to limit people, then it no longer becomes something about these technologies. That's just you co-opted the system of government and you could potentially use br brutality. Um, and that you know becomes interesting in thinking about how different types of regimes can use emerging technologies versus democracies or democratic republics and sort of who has who has the advantage yeah and actually that's one of the questions i, I would love to um ask a little bit further down so um before getting into that though because that opens a whole nother area of discussion um you know with artificial intelligence as well the other thing is when you look at um uh google's a, um, just a robot without the brain, just the pure body. You know, one wonders, are we creating a world like Terminator where you have these machines that um, are really strong, um, have great balance. Um, and, and so now you have um, a specific party who can create a huge um, array of these machines and maybe machines creating other machines. And then you put an AI brain into it. Think, And how can you stop that? You know, you, you, no human could ever, um, it's, it's metal. And if it dies, it doesn't matter because it doesn't have a soul. It doesn't have a, you know, so there's no potential um, uh, empathy or anything towards and it wouldn't even feel empathy towards any other person. So you've got a handful of people at the top and it could be governments, it could also be private entities. You know, there could be a, a, a private company that decides to create these and then decides, you know what, actually, I'm going to take this one. <laughs> and and what can one really do to stop an entire army of machines? I mean... So the, the, those are the kind of scenarios that where we have uh, definitely gone into science fiction. And goodness gracious knows I love a good science fiction, whether it's, you know, Bioshock, the video game or, or the Matrix. Um, and they are, you know, and I, I'm not I'm not I don't I'm not being dismissive because I think those are really useful for us for thinking about sort of the ends. You know, what what could the worst outcome look like and how do we ensure that we don't get there we're not there now and that is where particularly where i find the utility in thinking about and and frankly i use science fiction a lot of times in in my classes and i i try to incorporate it because it does get people to think about okay so hold on where we're here now what are the steps along the way technologically politically all these different pieces, are there points that could potentially be stopped? Are there pieces that are more important, pieces that are less important? And that's the kind of things that I try to get, particularly try to get my students to think about. What are all the different the social factors, the political factors, the technological factors, all those different pieces in between? No, that's very true because, um, I mean, I do think that all of us are, collectively co-creating the future. And, um, you know, a lot of our current technology was inspired by past science fiction. So, you know, usually there's an idea and then there's action that you, like you're saying, there, there has to be those steps to, to, to counter that. But, um, you know, just one looks at all of these things that we've spoken about, like um, CRISPR or any gene editing, the dire consequences of having, you know, um, the first offspring doesn't even know that they're carrying this disease. And then by the time it's three, four generations down, all of a sudden it spreads so far through the population, you know, we're in trouble. Or um, like we spoke about nanotechnology, if there's tiny little um, nanotechnology that we probably can't even see come into our cells and just completely destroy our body. I mean, these are, these are 
things that are being created right on neurological interfaces we decide to implant these things into our brain. I mean, all of these things come together to create, and it, it, it is quite difficult to not think about the risks that all of these are collectively creating. It's not even mm-hmm. just one. They're, they're all tackling from different ends. And then you just add AI on top of that and it turns into a pretty morbid, you know, scenario. And, and, and that's why, you know, I was so excited to talk to you about this, to also talk about one of some of the things that we can do um, to help mitigate against these. But, um, you know, before that, I, I just wanted to ask, you know, were there any other emerging technologies that we hadn't thrown into the mix, <laughs> you know, like hypersonic expiry, quantum computing, um, you know, would chemicals come back? Uh, any of those sort of ideas? Just just to make us seem a bit more <laughs> depressed if we aren't already. So, oh, again, yeah. Yes, I think there are some other technologies that are of concern. Um, you know, chemical weapons, in many ways, chemical weapons never went away. We wanted them to. And there has been, the, the risk has reduced significantly. Um, in 2005, I was asked to brief um, the US WMD Commission on the risks of nanobiotechnology. And I said, sure, I'll be happy to talk with you about nanobiotechnology, um, you know, mostly speculative risks. But I, I said, I wanted to brief, this was the, the WMD Commission staff, I said, I, I want to brief you on chemical terrorism and chemical weapons. Well, it turned out that they weren't even planning to think about my cat's jumping up on me. Um, they weren't even planning to think about chemical weapons. Uh, and this WMD commission, you know, U.S. congressionally chartered, they made a prediction when they issued their final report. They predicted that within 10 years, we would see a biological or a nuclear terrorist incident. So again, this was 2005, 2006. Yep. Well, by 2013, we had seen a state, Syria, using chemical weapons against its own people. It's part of an interstate conflict. Um, so I would say that that has been one of the pieces that, for a variety of reasons, and I have some hypotheses as to why, um, chemical has not gotten as much attention. Now, chemical does not have the geopolitical or, frankly, the risk that nuclear weapons does. Um, but chemical terrorism, particularly chemical terrorism, is still with us. Chemical weapons are still with us. Um, one of the emerging technologies that I think is most potentially interesting um, is something called squids. And squids are not just, you know, the marine animals. So squids is, it has to do with its quantum interference device. And squid is a, squids are a way that you can pretend, you detect small changes in magnetic moment. Um, very, you can detect very, very small cha- changes. Um, so use of squids potentially is one way that might be able to detect nuclear submarines. And again, this is going back to as I talked with AIML, that, you know, again, if you can detect nuclear submarines, then you've changed 
that balance of power, you change nuclear strategic stability. And that is going to be majorly destabilizing. Um, some other things just to sort of hit, um, hit on them, organ printing. Oh, yeah. um, mostly, I think organ printing is going to be good. I mean, we've already got a lack of organ donors, um, but there certainly are ways that we can think about organ printing that have potentially have negative consequences. Um, the first time we detect life beyond the planet, and that's not a technology, but it's part, it's going to be enabled by technology. And I'm not talking about, you know, necessarily, you know, highly cogent life. It's going to probably be bacteria or viruses. But when there is detection, and I'm quite confident it's going to happen, of life form, whether it be, you know, um, on Europa, um, on Io, or somewhere else, that's going to be major challenge to a whole lot of political, religious, ethical systems that could potentially be destabilizing. And that's something else I think we should be start thinking about more. How do you deal with this from these, you know, these, the major, how do the major religions potentially de deal with when we first discover life on another, you know, another body in the solar system? Um, that's going to be huge. And again, those, that's, this is, that's a great example of sort of most of these modern questions, these cutting edge questions today no single person has all the answers you've got you've got to work in teams because the expertise not a single person has um it's really important to be able to work together with other people and you know maybe if we find any sort of life um that's more than a single celled organism um in other planets maybe that could also help all of us um club together to say well you know there's humans there's there's earthlings and there's other entities. So therefore, all of Earthlings should collaborate together um, and fight whatever other threat there may be. And, and that could be one of the most unifying things rather than us fighting over small racial or cultural differences. Uh, you know, that, that would be really great, actually. Yeah. I, how, and how do, how do we make or how do we increase the likelihood that the scenario you, that you mentioned is the one that happens? That's what I'm interested in. Again, that's something that no single person can do. But if we set that up, if we have at least the government institutions, the people talking with each other, the right people in connection, so that kind of thing that you outline, you know, again, to go back to science fiction, it's kind of like, you know, Independence Day without having the aliens, you know, that apparently can can use Max, um, you know. How do we get the humans to unite? Oh, I've got I've got a science fiction reference for just about everything. Uh, Love it. So we can, we can we can we weave those in. Hey, I was gonna earlier I was gonna quote Jeff Goldblum from you know Jurassic Park. Nature finds a way. Um, and you know especially when we start talking about things like germ at germline editing, you know the editing of the progeny so that it gets transitioned down to future dna we it's that's the hard thing is single changes or even groups of changes in your dna how that is going to affect your progeny we don't know there's so much uncertainty 
Mm-hmm. And in some ways, I look at that uncertainty. That to me, I, that that that's that's fascinating. That's reason to to study more. I can also understand why that can also be scary. Well, one of the discussions I had earlier in regards to Crystal, and this is going on the uh, the going through the lens that you know CRISPR should be distributed to everyone, is saying, well, when everybody started using computers, how quick did our um, understanding of computers or um, through our coding, how fast did that develop? And so the mindset there, and look, once again, I'm not subscribing to any of you. I'm just asking questions and, and trying to understand mm-hmm. is, well, what happens if we had to start life on um, other planets or moons, um, you know, that, that, that are pure ice? What, what does that look like? And what happens if we had to edit our genes to create wings or to create gills so we could live um, in different planets? So it's like, well, is our next stage of evolution um, becoming um, these weird sort of adaptive species? But then again, um, you know, what dire consequences does that have? We don't know the implications of that. Um, as soon as you start growing gills and pass it to your next generation, are there other consequences that may come about? And, um, and I know that's slightly off topic, but um, it's just very interesting to think about. No, I don't think it's off topic because you know, we can look at things like this is going to sound semi-random and it's not a science fiction reference, but we know that the people who live in the high altitudes of the Himalayas actually have changes to some of the molecules, the hemoglobin, the blood. And these are just that have their, I mean, it's just evolution. These are the, some of the small changes have enabled them to be better able to function in the lower oxygen levels when you live at 12,000 feet or higher. Um, And I only speak in, in, Metri- I don't speak in metric, sorry, when it comes to defeat. Um, you know, so we, you know, to ex- go from there. So if we understand what are the changes that have enabled better able to function in a lower concentration of oxygen at lower pressures, because as you go up in altitude, the overall pressure change gets lower. You know, is that going to be the kind of piece? And if I was a scientist who was thinking about, well, how do we enable humans better to function, oh, let's say on Mars, you know, assuming we've gotten over all the other difficulties of being on Mars or cis lunar, you know, that would be the kind of thing that I would be looking at. I want to understand what are the changes and, you know, is, is there ways that you can, you know, if, that you, if needed, that we can use things to make humans more amenable. Um, and then also everybody can climb Mount Everest um, without oxygen. Yeah, definitely. Yep, yep. And and even if you're looking at that through a warfare application, it's, it's maybe being more resilient to, um, I think I read one article recently on, um, they used uh, those little seabeds, the tonograids, and they took some genes from there and um, made, I think it was like, soldiers immune to toxic chemicals or something i was like oh that's really interesting <laughs> so i mean i'm not it's just you know what what implications does that even have on warfare and i guess we did touch on uh the consequences of crispr but um yeah it's really weird um so with quantum computing what are your thoughts on that if there's anything compared with encryption um i mean quantum computing is gonna happen um i i don't see it as the Quantum, quantum computing, there are lots of different types of quantum computing. Quantum encryption is going to happen. I mean, then we're going to you know, figure out ways 
to break it. It's going to be harder, but it's it's going to happen. I see that as being more evolutionary than necessarily revolutionary. Yeah, nice. Awesome. And the significance of access to water in the future. So that one is getting, again, that's something that's starting to get outside of my areas of expertise. Um, and it certainly goes into climate change. Um, I don't think it's going to be a specifically access to water is likely to be the triggering event, but it's certainly likely to be part of a, a larger number of destabilizing factors um, in some states. And, you know, in a, it certainly is something that in the United States, we should be looking at more seriously internally in terms of what are the effects, um, particularly in parts of the United States that have seen significant growth in the um, the last 50 years. So, you know, access to water is rarely truly a driver of war, um, but it may be sort of a good like signal um, as part of a larger set of climate change factors. Mm, yeah, because I think I'd read a quote quite a while ago and it was like the next world war may be fought over water where they were saying that um, access to clean water may be more um, Yes, but then I guess with the rise in technology, there's always ways to create clean water from different avenues. So um, maybe that's not so much of a big risk as you think it was. I, and I mean, I, I also may have to just acknowledge that, you know, being coming originally from Michigan, you know, being surrounded by the, the you know, the five Great Lakes, those those great sources of, of fresh water, it may it may bias some, some of my responses. And so now we're going back to um, what are the existential risks associated with a lot of these topics that we've spoken about? So again, you know, existential is a really high bar. And I think it's important that, that we acknowledge that. I mean, the, the, the biggest existential risk that I see by far that we can have some control on is, is climate change. Um, and we are not adequately addressing what needs to be done to limit potential existential threats from climate change. And it isn't just climate change. It's what is climate change going to drive that's going to be a secondary or a tertiary consequence. Um, you know, if we do look to things like biology and emerging infectious diseases, we're already seeing the ranges of a number of infectious diseases expanding because as it's becoming warmer, things that previously were only tropical diseases are moving into Florida. You know, so it's changing what is the area where these things can thrive. Um, as these areas where things can thrive change, they're also moving into places where more people live. Um, and it is that intersection of particularly viruses with large groups of people that will drive pandemics. Um, and I've, I've often said, and, and I think I've written it a few times, mama nature, mother nature is the ultimate bioterrorist. Um, you know, so that is, again, it's, it is a sort of secondary tertiary consequence of climate change, but one that we need to think about. Um, another, probably not existential, but certainly of significant consequence, as the permafrost is melting, are diseases that were locked away in the permafrost bodies going to be 
melting, the permafrost becoming viable again. And that's not, others have, have written much and spoken much more eloquently on that than I have. Um, you know, I mentioned before that I've looked at some of these scenarios that might challenge nuclear weapons. Um, there really are very limited numbers. Okay. Um, I, I don't see any scenarios with nanotechnology, with AIML that are going to be existential risks. That's not to say that there aren't scenarios that could be really, really bad. Again, it's just this existential, you know, end, the end of the end of all life on Earth or almost all life on Earth is a really high bar. And that may speak to some of my my skepticism. Yeah, no, of course. And I know that, um, you know, Elon Musk has been quite um, vocal about AI being an existential risk. And that's why he says one of the largest motivations for him to want to build a civilization on Mars is to say, well, if something on Earth happens, um, we only have one earth whereas if there's um you know mars we, we've kind of <laughs> we're hitting our best a little bit you know and then leave room for expansion into other planets so it is actually i suppose quite promising hearing from you that you don't necessarily see all of those things as existential risks as of yet no and and i also think that um you know many of Musk's comments um actually expose how little he understands about how difficult it is to live on Mars. And, you know, who knows, maybe a lot of um, artificial intelligence can help. I mean, maybe this is just a, um, an escape uh, or, you know, but I, I always try to think, okay, well, you know, maybe with a lot of these issues, um, AI could help solve some of these things. You know, maybe it could come up with solutions we never thought about, including global warming or climate change. It's like, hey, um, what, what solutions do you have um, to help us? to solve some of these major complex issues. I, I think that's a great e example. Um, I would like to see you know, more, more direction towards solving climate change issues. Um, in particular, we need less focus on individual actions and more on large entities, um, whether that be states or, or big processes. Um, you know, greenwashing, you know, calling something or, or motivating for environmental is not helpful. Um, we need to call that out. So we need more reduction in single-use plastics. So I would love to see, you know, some of these algorithms where it might be useful along with people. Think about, okay, is there a way for us to reduce the usage of single-use plastics? Um, that is would be, to, in, it, to my mind, a great example of using AIML to solve a real problem. Yeah, well, I mean, this might be a little bit of a political response, but I really do think that when you, that the solutions are out there. I mean, I've seen reusable uh, like plastics that can biodegrade. Yeah. I've seen these, these solutions are there, but it's just that corporations have their hand, I think, in the government's pocket. And there is a lot of um, bribery and corruption and so on because it takes one decision to say, you know what, for every single um, <laughs> cocoa or any brand, if we find that bottle, um, if I find one of these bottles on the ground, this company should be charged a dollar or whatever it is. And then that incentivizes them to say, okay, wait, we shouldn't be doing that. Let's look for alternatives. But because there's no monetary incentive, none of that happens. So it's like the answers are there. It's just corruption, greed, and a lack of care that is 
I, oh, I, I agree. I mean, it's it's about incentives. It's about human psychology. I mean, there, yeah, this is the, it's the the tragedy of the commons um, where, you know, we, we treat our planet is, is our ultimate commons that we are treating as if it is disposable when it when it isn't, um, you know, and so are these big, complicated issues, you know, is that a place where, again, I don't think AIML is going to provide the solution, but it might provide directions um, in ways that we haven't been thinking about that then people and groups of people can weave together. You know, I, I don't uh, pretend to be an expert on psychology. A huge amount of this has to do with, with, you know, how do you get people to value doing something? How do you get people to see a value? Um, you certainly are. I concur on highlighting, you know, there, there are large interests out there. Um, you know, right now we, we've got, you know, fossil fuels are a, are a huge issue. How do we get a, the world to move away from fossil fuels when that is so tied into geopolitics, to structures, to power. And then it becomes these like weird cultural things. Um, you know, I look back, my, my grandfather, my great grandfather were coal miners in Kansas. Nobody thinks of Kansas as coal mining area, but in the late 1800s, early 1900s, they coal mined in Kansas and well, they, dug it all out. There was no more. So then they moved to Detroit to be part of the auto industry. Well, now we have this, this politics, particularly in the United States, where there's become all this cultural pieces that have been imbued into coal mining in West Virginia. You know, and we had a political candidate who said, hey, let's I, I want to invest so we can retrain you to do something that, oh, by the way, isn't going to kill you and you aren't, you know, directly or cause you to have silicosis of the lungs so that you die at 55. But that was rejected. Um, and again, so these are these are pieces that are way beyond my, my knowledge base. But I can I can articulate the problems and say, hey, look, this is a psychology thing. This is this is something beyond me that I can go back and say, well, two generations ago, you know, people just moved and literally transitioned to a different technology, coal mining, the auto industry. We can't do that anymore. Why? And I suspect, and this is just a hypothesis, a whole bunch of it goes back to what you were articulating about vested interests, you know, because those guys who are dying at age 55 from silicosis, they aren't the ones making the millions or more in those companies. But yet somehow they are still supporting those companies rather than transitioning to whatever is the emerging technology equivalent this century of the auto industry, you know, at the start of the 1900s. No, I completely agree. And there needs to be. You know, but then again, and this I suppose goes on to the next question where you have a double-edged sword. So it's one is is providing more um, control, more restriction, more um, intervention from a government level. But then on another end, does that impinge on capitalism or impinge on freedom? So 
um, you know, uh, which system of governments are more resilient to these new technologies to warfare or even these ideas that we've discussed? And are there any vulnerabilities that we haven't discussed? So I think that's a fa fantastic question. Um, and there's there's the answer, if you look historically, is not the one that we think of. Historically, it is the democracies and democratic republics that seek to be open, transparent, and minimize corruption that are more resilient and have been at better able to deal with vulnerabilities. You gotta have organizations and institutions that work and you've gotta have checks and balances. Also gotta invest in, in R&D and basic research. Um, I like to highlight the work of others to, again, acknowledge that this is a, a world. Uh, Norwegian scholar, um, and forgive me if I'm pronouncing her name incorrectly, Malfried brought uh, Hegehammer. I mean, she's done some amazing work looking at why Iraq under Saddam Hussein and Libya under Muammar Gaddafi were not able to produce nuclear weapons programs. You know, so you think the common sort of the common idea is, well, oh, these authoritarian regimes, it's easier. Well, she pulls apart and shows why, at least in those two authoritarian regimes, it's harder. Um, you know, so I think that there is still value in believing in democracies, um, believing in democratic republics. Focusing on minimizing corruption, rewarding and incentivizing merit, incentivizing new ideas. You know, kind of those things that if you peel back what capitalism has become often today, those ideas at the core of capitalism, they still work really well. It's this layer as it's been sort of mediated through some of, you know, the late... 20th century, late 21st century um, pieces like we were talking about in the context of coal mining, at least in the United States. Um, I know that Australia has its own issues with mining, particularly in West Australia. Um, you know, so that democratic republics, capitalism, support for R&D, open transparency, these are the things that give you some resilience and particularly reduce vulnerabilities to some of these risks. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, I don't know, when I see, like, so for democratic um, decision-making, and uh, look, once again, I'm not, I'm not in politics. So I have no idea really how it works, just from the view that I can see that, is that, you know, there still has to be decision after decision, the discussion, you pass it through to a higher level, they discuss it, and then it gets done. But when you look at some of this technology that's being released, some of these um, issues that we've discussed, you know, if you're looking at more of um, like a dictatorship um, where decisions can be made from the top, they will say, okay, let's do X, Y, and Z and it gets done or let's defend against X, Y, and Z. And usually, so do you think that that, that slow down, that, that, that time that it takes to make decisions could be quite dire? So in some cases it can. The other person is that, it's important to recognize that those layers often can 
be useful when there are bad ideas. You know, those layers stop the bad ideas from flowing up. So a, a, a in an authoritarian regime where, you know, everyone just tells the authoritarian leader what he, he wants to hear, that in, in some ways makes them more vulnerable to going down paths that are not correct, especially when we're talking about emerging technologies. Um, again, I'll, I'll reference another scholar, um, Evgeny um, Morozov. And again, I may not be pronouncing his, last, his name correctly. Um, he wrote a book back in 2011 called The Net Delusion. And he was one of the first people, you may, you may have, have heard of this book before, he was one of the first people to say, look, the internet is not going to increase dem democracy. He said the internet is likely to be used by authoritarian regimes to oppress their own people. Well, you know, you look, you look at Iran, you look at limp, the Great Firewall in China, so yes, authoritarian regimes often will use emerging technologies to control their own people. Um, and so something back to, you know, we're talking about democracies. One of the things that I have to say, and this isn't just in the context of democracy, um, the older I get, um, the more I see and the stronger advocate I am for leaders needing to have trusted advisors, knowledgeable advisors, who will challenge them. And in good democracies, and when you have, you know, challengers who are, who may be from a different party, but are not wacko, that can happen. And that makes your decisions better. You know, having that, you know, you having that challenge from inside should be something that leaders want. And I think the best leaders do have that. Yeah. It is the, the leaders who, who don't want anybody from the inside telling them anything other than that. They're wonderful. Those, those aren't good. Yeah. But, and I guess, look, also if you're taking that with a broader lens, um, I, I do see some of the pros, but a lot of cons of this whole cancel culture where there are specific words that people can't say. There's specific topics people can't say. There's particularly in the West, there's so much, there's people take offense, the smallest things. And, you know, I, I can only see, I haven't been to the US, but from the outside looking in, it seems, and the people I've spoken to from America say, you know, in family gatherings, there's certain topics you cannot talk about because if you do, it will just divide the entire family. And to me, I think that's really sad is through freedom of speech, it also comes into um, you talking about ideas and then you get the op op opposite um, or opposing views. And from there, you can, it actually doesn't make extremists because then you're like, whoa, okay, actually some of what she's saying is correct. Oh, wow, okay. And so you level out. But through this bubbling that you just get people who just hate the other, you know, actually hate, physically hate the, the opposition. And it's because they can't talk about these topics, so they go underground. And it just becomes like really weird. I... I Yes, I concur. And perhaps we're, we're back to that idea of, you know, wouldn't it be in some ways perhaps wonderful if we could understand and have empathy, you know, so that that neuronal connection, um, you know, yeah, I, I find that I often look at things that are associated and there certainly are exceptions. Um, 
with cancel culture often are backlash against groups who previously had not said things, had not had, you know, the openness, who had not felt that they could say anything. They were self-deterred. Um, and it is those groups that it's it's groups that think that they are entitled to something. And when they realize that, well, it's actually privilege because you're part of this group, they don't react well. I mean, no, nobody reacts well when they, you know, they think that they earned something. And well, actually, you know, it turned out that you had you had three steps ahead. And, you know, it, it, it's not your responsibility. So, yeah, this again, these are pieces that I see, particularly in the United States. We're likely to see more problems as the United States shifts from a white majority country to when we become a white minority country. We're going to continue to see more and more of this. Um, I also do, I you know, I say I have a lot of friends who are outside of um, academia and, you know, the, you hear this about, you know, oh, cancel culture on colleges. I'm like, well, really? What? Yes, there are some incidents that have gotten a lot of attention. The vast majority of colleges, you know, there's no cancel culture. You know, you, you're in a chemistry class. It's not about cancel culture. It's about chemistry. Um, you know, looking at the biggest, the biggest threat right now to academia is admin strivia. You know, so this admin, the 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 additional layers and then secondarily in the United States, particularly state institutions, so public institutions, the amount of their budget that comes from the, the state has shrunk so much that you got to get your funding from someplace else. Well, the federal government, you know, the R&D actual R&D adjusted for inflation has it's available it has shrunk so increasingly researchers have to go to private industry and then we get back to some of these other challenges that we were talking and, and to be explicit there's a lot of funding that comes from the the private sector that is you know has no no strings is is really good and it's been very beneficial um, but that I see as being a bigger issue in terms of it's 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 suppressing free speech because people don't have time to think and time to interact. Um, now, certainly there are exceptions if you're at, you know, certain places, UC Berkeley, I think it might be a little bit of a different situation, particularly where I am in, in Atlanta. It's not really an issue and I suppose another one with that is um, you know how do you think social media has been weaponized so we're talking about freedom of speech but then there's also foreign intervention saying oh let's start putting these ideas out there and let's back it up with quote-unquote evidence but so we have a, a, in, um, an array of information an abundance of information and then we get stuck in these specific bubbles because algorithms are feeding us you know confirmation bias and our brain is subject to that it's been programmed for that so you'd be looking and be like, wow, okay, this is true. And so you've got the extremists that all just hate each other um, with foreign intention. How, how do you think that social media has been weaponized? What does that all look like for you? 
So I, you're hitting on a really important issue. Um, some of it I can speak to, and some of it, again, goes beyond my authoritative area of expertise. I mean, I see it most problematically um, in things like what's been done by states like Russia, um, where Russia has used social media disinformation, misinformation uh, to further divisions internally in Western states. You know, so whether we're talking about the two, the 2016 U.S. presidential election, their attempted interference in the 2017 you know, French presidential election, um, Russia's attempted um, influence in the Brexit referendum. You know, so that I think is in terms of geopolitics, in terms of you know, sort of global situation, it is states like Russia that have weaponized or have misused the internet to try to exacerbate these further divides. Now, there's no question that China is also trying to use the internet. They do disinformation, misinformation, often in more subtle ways. Um, Iran tries to use it. So to me, that's the most problematic aspect. Um, and to sort of further that, not only is it exacerbating divides internally in states, but states like Russia have attempted to undermine institutions. So a ex great example of that is Russia challenging the findings by the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons that Syria was responsible for the use of chemical weapons and the attacks that the Syrian regime did. You know, so it's undermining the faith in, in these institutions. And the Chemical Weapons Convention is the, uh, of the three arms control treaties, is the ones that the most states have, have joined. And it actually has the most intrusive, you might say the most effective regime um, of all of the, the, the three treaties. And I, it's, it's not a surprise to me that Russia is trying to undermine it because they want to undermine the effective institution. And I mean, one of the um, one of my favorite books I've read is um, Noam Chomsky's Manufacturing Consent. And, you know, essentially to get a population on board, once you've manufactured that consent, you can go to war. And so, you know, I can see on one side for a government agency to um, control social media, what people are exposed to, it's easier to get a very strong political party. It's very easy to get one strong entity of hundreds, millions of people working together with one goal. I mean, that is powerful. But then you're taking away freedom of speech. You're taking away freedom of thought. You're essentially manipulating a population. But then on the other side, when you've got everything open, you can look at what you want. We don't have much control and regulation. But what happens? Now you have all of these foreign interventions, these weird ideas coming in, and you have this entire polarization, which is just completely splitting groups. And it's yeah. much easier to attack something that is not unified to a common goal. Concur. Um, and it doesn't even have to be states. So I assume that you've seen that Twitter's algorithm, the code was released, you know, so that purported denizen of free speech, you know, Mr. Musk, one of the things that he was suppressing was included in this code. So we don't know if he he did it, but was being suppressed and is still being suppressed by Twitter are tweets related to Ukraine. Now, of course, there are some who have hypothesized that, you know, it has anything to do with Russian influence. I, you know, I, I don't see any data that. 
But whatever the reason, there it is very clearly in the code that Ukraine, that gets suppressed in terms of the feed and the times that it gets repeated. So here you have an example. We're not talking about a state. We're talking about a company and a company, again, that is purportedly headed by someone who likes to talk about free speech, except when it relates to him. Um, so, yeah. Very interesting because when you have private entities controlling algorithms and surveillance, um, what does that look like? And even when you've got large government bodies controlling surveillance and algorithms, what does that look like? And it, it's, it's very interesting because once again, similar to a chip, which is inserted directly into your brain, this is much softer, but it's just equally as effective. Where you start going down, you don't even realize how quickly your thoughts are being changed. And all of a sudden, you're a huge advocate for a specific um, agenda or a specific response, and you don't understand why. And you will go and you'll fight for it and you'll do you'll stand behind it. Um, but who's put those ideas into your mind? Yeah, you're, yes, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, there have been a whole number of cases that have looked at radicalization by YouTube video. You know, now, were these people intrinsically more susceptible to radicalization or not? I don't know. But whatever it is, the consequences is the algorithm feeds you things that are more like what you start watching, and they often become more extremist. And there have been, you know, many cases of individuals, some who have gotten a lot of attention because they've been radicalized, at least in the United States, a lot of attention, they've been radicalized to things like radical jihad, um, you know, who have left the United States to try to support ISIL. Um, there's that. And then we also have all these people who have been radicalized to support QAnon. Um, and other conspiracy theorists. And yeah, we don't, we're doing this without even having, we don't, we don't need Neuralink, we don't need brain-computer interfaces. We're back to sort of human psychology. Yeah, and given the large amount of security breaches in the last few years, do we just assume all of our private data is in the hands of bad actors, or is there anything that we can do to actually protect ourselves in this regard? So my data was part of the data that was in the OMB, the Office of Budget Management and Budget breach that the Chinese uh, hack. Um, so yeah, I, you know, I very little of my data out there. Do I do I think do I necessarily worry about part of it? I think I look at it as signal to noise. Um, then there are there are the things that I try I do take very seriously to protect. <laughs> Um, you know, so we've got to figure out how to deal with this. One of the ways that I am a big advocate is we need better data protection within the United States. You know, right now, TikTok is getting a whole lot of attention in the United States, both by both parties um, criticizing it and in some ways legitimately. But the reality is that even these United States-based companies have a huge amount of data, you know, that they can accumulate, they can bring together. So we, this is an area where focusing on TikTok, I think, is a distraction when it's the bigger issues of data privacy that need to be dealt with across the board, but that is not politically palatable because it goes against 
interest and in, in some people who are making lots of money. Um, yeah, so yeah, we've got we've got a lot of work to do. And are there any other emerging technologies such as blockchain to make a difference? Um, so, you know, I, I already mentioned, you know, I, I think that there are a lot of emerging or emerged tech, um, the organ printing, um, the superconducting quantum interference devices, the squids, um, detection of life beyond the, the planet. Um, one of the things I will say is that right now there's a huge interest in emerging tech. Um, everything is emerging tech and I would say, you know, so one of the things that, you know, I would, you know, leave your listeners with is everything is not a threat. Um, one should be skeptical of silver bullets, um, both anytime somebody says something is going to solve every problem, um, but also be skeptical of something that somebody says is going to be, you know, is going to be the next nuclear weapon. We also need to be really careful to not be technologically deterministic. Just because somebody can do something does not mean they will. The classic example of this is Japan. No one doubts that Japan has you know, nuclear fuel in their uh, nuclear power plants. Nobody doubts that Japan has the technical and material capacity capacity to potentially design and build. I mean, they've got the intellectual capacity. They, they as a country, have made a political decision. And you can look at a number of different cases. So, you know, we need to, to be very careful to not be technologically deterministic. Decisions to make something into a weapon are political decisions. And you need to look at those, those factors. Yep, yep. And uh, in summary, what do you think it is what do you think it is on the doomsday clock? Are we uh, quite far away? Are we relatively close? So the doomsday clock, I think, is a fantastic metaphor. Um, if your listeners aren't familiar with it, this comes out of the Bulletin of American Scientists, originally the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, um, you know, a group that was founded by Albert Einstein and, and other um, scientists who were involved in the Manhattan Project. So most recently, they moved it to 90 seconds to midnight. Um, and that is the, um, in terms of the, the timing, that's the closest they've ever put it to, uh, to midnight. And it's based on the risks of war um, in Ukraine, and in particular, uh, Putin's rhetorical invocation of the threat of nuclear weapons. Um, you know, and, and, you know, recently we've got him asserting he's going to move nuclear weapons still under Russian control into another state. So they moved it to 90 seconds to midnight based on that, um, based on the lack of action on climate change. Um, I, I concur with their decision to move it closer to midnight. I'm not sure that I would say it's the closest ever. We need to look back to things like time of the Cuban Missile Crisis to sort of assess that. Um, again, I will uh, highlight um, another scholar, a young scholar, um, Hanin Khalid. Uh, she writes on Inkstick, um, which is a, a blog 
Um, you know, she made some really good comments on the, the change um, that really resonated with me. You know, that this is a metaphor and she looks at it as, hey, how can we take this as a call, a call to humanity to unite, um, a call to humanity to figure out how do we ensure that we don't reach midnight in the context of the doomsday yep. clock? Yep. No, I have to check out the stuff and um, I'll put a link below for, for listeners as well. Um, and I really like to finish this being a podcast. Um, you know, if there's one message to share with the world, what would that be? Um, so again, I, I, you know, mentioned already, um, you know, not everything emerging tech is a threat. Um, you know, it's sort of the, the, the bigger things, we need to elect good leaders. We need to fund basic R&D. Um, expertise matters. Real expertise matters. Um, you know, not the kind of expertise that you get by watching YouTube. That is not expertise. Um, facts matters. Truth matters. Um, you know, in the end, I have to be optimistic. Um, I have to have some belief in the ability of humanity to overcome problems. Um, you know, some days it's hard. But at the same time, there are just amazing people out there. Um, I have, uh, you know, traveled extensively, um, and I continue to be impressed by some of the absolutely wonderful people out there who I meet. Um, so that would be what I would leave uh, you and your listeners with. And I, I do want to make sure to say thank you. Um, I appreciate the opportunity to speak. Um, and I know that I've taken up a lot of time. So I'll just again say thank you. No, it's been such an honor, like really and truly, um, because I've read about a lot of these things. And by the end of them, you get so caught up thinking, oh, no, like, is the world going to end? I mean, there's so many reasons why we could all perish. But actually talking to you, surprisingly, calmed a lot of those nerves down because it's made you see that there's a lot more hoops people have to go through and it's a lot more um, difficult for these issues to actually actually be existential risks. So um, surprisingly, I've come out with a much um, brighter uh, view on the world after talking to you and, and you're, you are truly knowledgeable in so many of these areas. So it's been such an honor uh, to have this time with you and um, I really hope and I know that a lot of my listeners feel the same. So thank you so much. You are most welcome. And for people who want to... Um, check you out and um is there any way that they would um if they want to either um get in contact through social media or if they would like to read any of your books or blogs what would that look like for you? so i am on twitter at me kozel um i only pretty much post things there that are related to sort of my professional so that's like uh, my professional side um certainly i do publish a lot so google scholar is one of the best ways to actually see that that body of work that i have published um you know they're they're welcome uh to contact me through my my georgia tech address um and i i am happy to you know, to try to answer questions um, if, if they, if, if people want to reach out. Beautiful. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much. And um, yeah.